Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, before we begin the proceedings tonight, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to and acknowledge forever the, sorry Im, acknowledge the sorry respect the knowledge embedded thank you forever in the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So good evening everybody and welcome to the University of Sydney. Um, my name's Gillian Krill. I'm um, going to be your moderator for the evening. Um, we're going to have uh, some uh, panel come and give some views on some specific questions, and then there will be plenty of opportunity for you, the audience, to ask questions um, of that panel. Um, I'm also a professor of neuropathology here at the University of Sydney and myself a dementia researcher, so I'm particularly excited about the topic of conversation tonight. As many of you will be aware, today is World Alzheimer Day and indeed September is um, Dementia Awareness Month. The original purpose of establishing um, World Alzheimer Day was to raise awareness of Alzheimer's disease and dementia and to focus the attention of governments and communities on supporting those living with dementia and their families. The theme of this year's day is You Are Not Alone. And with more than 413,000 Australians living with dementia today, some 25,000 of which are under the age of 65, clearly they are not alone. The overall aim is to destigmatise dementia, and we hope that the discussions tonight will go some way um, to achieving that goal. We have three broad areas that we are going to discuss tonight around a cure for Alzheimer's disease, preventing the onset of Alzheimer's disease and also improving the quality of life for people who have Alzheimer's disease now. Um, we have a rich history of, of over 100 years of research on Alzheimer's disease, and yet as it will become apparent as the conversation goes on tonight, there are still many areas that we are not entirely clear about. So. Um, we're grateful that we have a, la a large number of researchers here at the University of Sydney, many of them in the Brain and Mind Centre um, on Mallet Street, that use um, their time and efforts to research um, Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. So right now I would start, like to start by introducing our panel members. Um, we have with us tonight three of the brightest stars of dementia research. Regrettably, in the time available, I won't be able to catalogue their vast array of achievements. Um, no giggling. <laughs> they are a, a very esteemed group. But rest assured that the future of dementia research um, is safe in their hands. So, firstly, we have Dr Rebecca Armit who is a consultant neurologist, director of the Multidisciplinary Memory and Cognition Clinic at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, and an NH and MRC Early Career um, Fellow at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. She undertook clinical research fellowship at the Dementia Research Centre at University College London, coordinating clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease. 
Her research focuses on the metabolic aspects of progression of neurodegenerative diseases. Welcome, Rebecca. Okay, we also have with us Professor Sharon Naismith. Sharon is the Leonard P. Ullman Chair in Psychology based at the Charles Perkins Centre. She is an NHMRC Dementia Leadership Fellow and heads the Healthy Brain Ageing Program at the Brain and Mind Centre. She examines biomarkers and interventions for cognitive decline in older adults at risk of dementia, particularly in the areas of depression, sleep and cognitive training. Sharon has published more than 200 scientific papers, a range of books and a number of com uh, consumer resources. So welcome, Sharon. And last and not least, and doing his bit for gender equality, we have Associate Professor John Kwok, who's a Principal Research Fellow and Team Leader at the Forefront Neurogenetics and Epigenetics Research Group at the Brain and Mind Centre. His research interests include neurodegenerative diseases, the impact of genetic mutations and polymorphisms, and how lifestyle factors affect the epigenome, which I hope we will learn a little bit more about the, what the epigenome is. John? <laughs> Welcome, John. So we're going to start with me posing a couple of questions to each of these panel members, and then, as I say, um, we'll have lots of opportunity a little later um, for you, the audience, to also ask questions um, of these researchers. So we might start with Rebecca. So Rebecca, as a neurologist, can you tell us what is Alzheimer's disease? Is it the same as dementia? And how can you tell them apart in the clinic? Great, thanks Gillian. So when we talk about dementia, what we actually mean is an umbrella term for a number of what we call neurodegenerative diseases. So these are progressive diseases that result in a functional impairment and a decline in cognition. So Alzheimer's is just one cause of dementia. There are about five or six other causes. So the most common is Alzheimer's disease, but then there's diseases such as frontotemporal dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies, and vascular dementia. So when we talk about Alzheimer's disease, we tend to divide it clinically into what we des describe as young onset dementia. So that's dementia that occurs in patients less than 65 years, and then older onset, which is in people greater than 65 years. So in the clinic, it can be quite difficult to tell the different dementias apart because most people come to the com clinic complaining of memory problems. That's the number one thing that people complain of. So when we think of Alzheimer's disease, the classic patient will come in describing memory problems. And it's not long-term memory. So they can remember their childhood. They can remember growing up, going to university. But what they describe is short-term memory problems. So they won't remember a conversation they had with their child. They won't remember a conversation with their partner. They may not remember a recent movie they saw. So you ask them, can you tell me the plot line back of this movie you saw? And they'll say, oh, I can't quite remember. They also can't remember, for example, someone rang and left a message on the phone. They won't remember that. They can also have problems with what we call visuospatial function. 
So that's difficulty knowing where things are in space. So the number one way we pick it up in the clinic is trouble with driving. So they might describe, suddenly I can't reverse park anymore, or there are scrapes on the car that I didn't know how they got there. They also might have language problems, so word-finding difficulties. So they won't remember the names of things, or they won't remember people's names that they've known for many years. So when we get to the clinic, we assess people clinically, so we take a history, and it's always important that people come along with a friend or a carer, because often people who have uh, dementia have little insight into what's going on. So they can be quite vague and say, I'm not quite right, but can't pinpoint where the problem is. So we often take a history from the carer or the friend that comes along. And often that will help us kind of pinpoint where the problem is. And different memory clinics use different screening tools to assess where the problem is. Uh, we use a specific test called the Adam Brooks Cognitive Examination, but that will vary from clinic to clinic, and that can help us tell where the problem is. If we're not sure, we then refer people for neuropsychology testing, which gives us a much more kind of in-depth look at what's happening with their memory and cognition. A new kind of area that's developing that's helping us to tell uh, whether people have dementia and how far they've progressed is imaging. So at the moment we use uh, MRI of the brain to look for shrinkage of specific areas of the brain. But kind of one of the hot topics is biomarkers and that's tests that we can do to look at the underlying pathology that causes Alzheimer's disease. And one of the kind of things that's come to Australia probably in the last three to four years is we know the two proteins that cause Alzheimer's disease is a protein called amyloid and a protein called tau. And we can measure these proteins by doing a simple test called a lumbar puncture where we take a sample of the fluid essentially that the brain floats in and we can measure those proteins and that gives us about an 85 to 90% sensitivity and specificity. Oh, I always get stuck on that word for the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. So that's really helpful in kind of telling do people absolutely have in their brains the pathological proteins that cause Alzheimer's disease. Another tool that we use in the clinic when we're not sure is we've got the structural imaging with MRI, but there's other imaging called functional imaging. And that tells us what parts of the brain are functioning well and what parts aren't functioning well. And that's very helpful in differentiating the different um, types of dementia apart. And that's really good. I mean, biomarkers will help us eventually with clinical trials. So what are the key things that differentiate Alzheimer's disease from some of those other types of dementia that you mentioned? Yeah, so the key thing that differentiates Alzheimer's disease from, for example, frontotemporal dementia is Alzheimer's disease patients predominantly present with memory problems. So it's that short-term memory problems in remembering appointments and visuospatial problems versus a diagnosis, for example, of frontotemporal dementia, patients present with behavioural changes, personality changes. So we can differentiate them on clinical grounds and then on the imaging grounds there'll be a different pattern of changes on the brain that we'll see. So Sharon, what are the risk factors for developing Alzheimer's disease and what can we do to prevent or slow the onset of Alzheimer's disease? 
My favourite question. Um, <laughs> um, so um, I guess I'm going to focus really just on what Rebecca was referring to as the late onset Alzheimer's disease. So that is the cases that occur after about the age of 60. Um, so we know that Alzheimer's disease, roughly the, the rates are about 1% of the population and then roughly we say they double every five years after that. So these are the people that we're thinking about really trying to prevent the disease. And what's interesting is we now know that anywhere between 30 to 50% of the risk of those kinds of Alzheimer's presentations are due to things that we say are modifiable. So things we can do in our life that can alter our chances, I guess, of getting Alzheimer's disease. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody that you know, does these things that, and does them well will definitely not get Alzheimer's disease because there are always you know, individual cases that don't follow the statistics. But what it does mean is that when we look at the population data, it tells us that we can actually address certain things. And those things really are things that relate to our cardiovascular profiles. So we hear a lot in the media about obesity and maintaining a good heart health and looking after our blood pressure and diabetes. Well, those things are really big risks for Alzheimer's disease. So even things like blood pressure contribute 5% to the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Another really big one is actually depression. So depression is quite toxic for the brain, we think, um, and it contributes about 8% of the risk to Alzheimer's disease as well. And then we have other things that are a little bit harder to, to understand the mechanisms, but having a low level of education accounts for about 19% of the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And the reason why we think that that's important is because actually we build a bit of a reserve or a buffer against Alzheimer's disease, disease if we keep our minds active. And really this has um, been shown in a lot of studies showing that more highly educated people can have higher levels or more Alzheimer's disease in their brain and yet show less symptoms clinically. And this has really given way to a whole, um, uh, uh, I guess, industry and also a lot of scientific studies looking at what can we do to actually enhance our brain from a brain training perspective and keeping our mind active. The other really, really big one, which in many ways I think is the most important, is actually exercise or physical inactivity is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, contributing about 13% of the, of the risk. So studies have shown that if older people exercised at the levels that they should, which is at least you know, three times a week and including cardiovascular as well as muscle resistance or strength training, that we could actually reduce about 40% of the cases of Alzheimer's disease. And, and it's not only important for, of course, our cognition, our memory and thinking skills, but it's also really important for our mental health and also important even in someone that already has a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, exercise can actually slow um, the functional decline that we might see. So they're the kind of a, a big risk, and the reason why that's really important is because we now know, and actually some famous Australian research has shown, that um, the changes that are occurring in the brain that lead to Alzheimer's disease are occurring about 10 to 20 years before someone ever comes to the type of clinic that Rebecca was just talking about. So we really are looking at trying to target these risk factors in people from at least the age of 40 or 50. Um, because we know that if we can get it in that 20 years, then we have our best chances of preventing the disease. But also, even if we start to look at people that are at risk of Alzheimer's disease, there is a syndrome that's called mild cognitive impairment, where you come along to an awful person like me who does all these wonderful tests that Rebecca was telling you about, <laughs> um, and I'd sit there with a clipboard and look at your memory in detail and do all, all different kinds of um, tests um, 
with you and we can work out if you are well below where you should be for your level of education and your age. And that syndrome, mild cognitive impairment, is associated with about a 50% chance of progressing to Alzheimer's disease within five years. And importantly, we know that a lot of the prevention strategies for Alzheimer's disease, if they're delivered in that period, we have the greatest chance of success. Um, so once someone has Alzheimer's disease, we can do less about it than when, if we actually target people before they get it. So you talk about the importance of diet, and probably every week on the radio I'd hear, you know, coffee's good for this, or, you know, chewing gum's good, you know, there's always something. And they usually are followed by a contradicting um, report the following week. So are there specific things in our diet that we should be trying to aim for? Yeah, that's a, a good question. I too am a bit confused by the diet literature, except I do know that there's an emerging um, evidence base for the Mediterranean diet, and obviously a lot of our diet um, is linked to cardiovascular disease and obesity, so things like saturated fats and high glucose that then lead to diabetes, obesity, high cholesterol are important. Um, but there seems to be a bit more um, evidence emerging for the benefits of the Mediterranean diet for our cardiovascular health as well. So I think ultimately important, but as you know, those studies are really difficult to do. So it's really hard to track people's diet over time and then to look at what are the risk factors longitudinally. So I think it's still an emerging space, but um, certainly if we follow the things we know about keeping sugar down, keeping saturated fats to a minimum and using things like olive oil, amigo, Three, um, that kind of thing, we know that they're certainly probably good things. So, John, we've all heard that um, Alzheimer's disease runs in families. Okay. So, what is the genetic risk of Alzheimer's disease? Uh, so, that's a very good question, and it's one that I ask, um, get asked quite often as well, um, being involved in genetic testing. And so it's a good that I'm, I'm speaking after Rebecca and Sharon because they've actually introduced some of the key aspects of what I want to say about genetic testing as well. So one of the first things you need to realize is that Alzheimer's disease, as, Rebe um, as Rebecca said, can be divided into two types. Early onset Alzheimer's disease, which is before the age of 65, and the far more common um, Alzheimer's disease, which is um, one that is typically affects our elderly parents and relatives. With <clears throat> mutations in genes that can cause Alzheimer's disease, these typically impact people with early onset Alzheimer's disease. So if you have a clear-cut family history of early onset Alzheimer's disease, and by that we mean that there is multiple affected individuals, more than three, and in that case we can recommend genetic testing. And also in that case, the, the the yield or the, the likelihood that we would identify something is quite high, about 80% of, of those families will identify mutation in a known gene. For the majority of Alzheimer's disease, the late onset sporadic kinds, there is a risk, but it's actually quite low. So if you have a first degree relative with Alzheimer's disease, and by that we mean a, a parent or a sibling, then your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease disease increase from 10% at age of 85 to 25% at age of 85. So there's a slight increase in um, increased uh, risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, as to whether that, as to whether that, does work, as to whether that actually um, is important or not, actually I think it is. So 
with the genetic research that people do on Alzheimer's disease, uh, my area of research is firstly trying to identify genes that causes Alzheimer's disease, and more importantly, understanding how these genetic faults lead to the disease process. Now, with Alzheimer's disease, there's three genes that's known to cause Alzheimer's, um, Alzheimer's disease. So this is the APP gene, and the presenin one and the presenin 2 genes. Now, by studying these genes, what people have realized is that all these genes act to increase um, the level of an abnormally sticky protein called amyloid. And it's this amyloid protein that clumps together and forms CNR plaques that we see in Alzheimer's disease brains. So this kind of genetic research sort of tells us that the formation of the amyloid may be the very important triggering event in, in the causation of Alzheimer's disease. The problem with this kind of research is it doesn't really tell you whether a, a, a therapy which targets amyloid formation um, is actually effective or not, because quite a lot of money has been um, spent on developing ways to um, bind to the amyloid and to clear within the brain. And unfortunately, none of these therapies have worked to date. Um, so what perhaps we need to do is actually not put all our eggs in one basket, but to have, adopt sort of multimodal ways to treat the disease, um, perhaps by combination of lifestyle factors um, and also some, some of the more uh, other types of cutting-edge therapies. So do we know all of the genes that are involved in Alzheimer's disease? Um, for Alzheimer's disease, I would say, for early onset Alzheimer's disease, I would say most of the genes are known. Um, for the other types of dementias, um, like frontal temporal dementia, which Rebecca mentioned, I think that the, the field is much more interesting, shall we say, because there's a lot more unknown out there. We do a lot of genetic research on frontal temporal dementias, and one of the most interesting findings is actually the people with frontal temporal dementias can have mutations in genes which are basically causing treatable conditions. So there is a family that's been reported that cause, um, in a mutation called SIP, and the gene cause, normally causes a condition called um, tendon, no, cerebrotendinitis, yes, that condition. Yes, so what, what Rebecca said. With this condition, you get cholesterol deposits everywhere throughout the body and also in the brain. And the, the interesting thing about it is that if it's caught early enough, you can be treated with bowel um, enzyme replacement. So what a paper has found, and we have found as well in one of our families, is that they actually have mutations in this gene. So at least for frontal temporal dementias, um, genetic research can actually impact directly on, on finding a cure. Okay, so we've gotten on to cure now, <laughs> as opposed to treatment. Sharon, how, do you, how close do you think we are to a cure? Are we anywhere there? I was hoping I wouldn't get that question. <laughs> um, I mean, as the panellists know, you know, there's many things that are being trialled at the moment, but um, I don't think we're close enough to getting a cure. The, I think 
I saw some figures, there's about 120 different trials of different um, types of agents um, in the states at the moment um, at various phases um, for Alzheimer's disease and looking at various different mechanisms. Um, but essentially at the moment, our best strategy is prevention and think well for the things we can prevent and that are they are the late onset Alzheimer's and things that relate to that, like vascular dementia is also very much related um, and contributes, vascular disease contributes to Alzheimer's. So they're the best things that we can do, but in terms of cures on the horizon, um, actually, Gillian, you'd probably know that better than I would. <laughs> okay, so if we, we accept that at the moment we don't have a cure, what, what about the therapies? What do you do when a person asks you in the clinic, um, Rebecca, what can I take, what can I do? You know, I can't prevent it now. I have a diagnosis of dementia. What do I do? I mean, I think the first step is people have to get a diagnosis. So I have a lot of patients who will come to the clinic and say, I've been going to doctors for two to four years. I've been told I've got depression. I couldn't possibly have Alzheimer's disease. It doesn't happen to someone at my age. And these are people in their late 60s, early 70s. So I think the first thing we have to do is accurately diagnose people. Um, and to do that, you need specialised clinics. And at the moment, they're kind of scattered around Sydney, but that kind of needs to be widespread in lots of hospitals around Sydney. So when the patients get the diagnosis, I think the first thing I say to them is that there is things that we can do. Although there's not a cure, there are drugs that have been shown to slow the progression of memory loss and behavioural changes. So the first drug we use is a drug called Aricept, which forms a class of drugs known as the cholinesterase inhibitors. So essentially, acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that's in the brain. And essentially, if you imagine, it sends messages between the nerves. And one hypothesis of how Alzheimer's disease may arise is that there's a deficiency of this acetylcholine in the brain. So these drugs essentially block the enzymes that break down the acetylcholine to increase the amount of acetylcholine in the brain. And a lot of patients do find benefit uh, with the drug. And essentially I put all of my patients with Alzheimer's disease on this drug. And what you have to explain to the patients is it won't be a cure. So you won't get back what you've lost, but potentially we can slow the progression of things down. So you may not notice an improvement, but if you weren't on the drug, you may go downhill a lot more rapidly. The other important thing that we can do for patients is support around the diagnosis. So the worst thing that a patient can do is go home and sit in the corner and lock themselves away and say, I've got this disease. I say to all my patients, you have to imagine it's like a chronic illness. You can still live a full life, do everything that you wanted to do. You just need to make some subtle adjustments. And I think that's the way we go about counselling the patients. They need to stay active, take up new hobbies, talk to people, get out, do exercise. And there are lots of resources out there. So Alzheimer's Australia has a fantastic website that has lots of resources. I think one of the things we also need to do to help patients is um, campaign to the government for more support. So at the moment, a lot of the support is focused on patients less than 65 years. So they get 
a key worker through Alzheimer's Australia who essentially guides them through the whole diagnosis and getting services. But once you hit 65, you end up in the kind of aged care sector, which is overflowing. And if you imagine, we're all expected now to work till at least 70. So a lot of people who will be diagnosed with dementia will still be working, still active, contributing members of, this, of society. So we really need to, I guess, campaign for extra funding for all people. So, John, back to the genes. Do you think, given that we don't have a cure now, and you tell us that the vast majority of older onset, which is the largest population of people with Alzheimer's disease, is probably not monogenetic, is genes really the path? As a researcher, is you know, this really the path we should be going down to try and find a cure? Um, I'll answer just cautiously, uh, being a geneticist. Um, I, think that there are, <laughs> I think there are important discoveries to be made by looking at genes that doesn't cause the disease, but increase the chance of getting disease. So what um, international collabor collaborations have led to is the discovery of a whole series of genes where variants in these genes um, can increase the risk of disease. And these type of genes group into certain classes that tell you what's important in a disease development. So there's a whole class of genes that will impact on cholesterol um, um, metabolism. There's a whole class of genes that um, impacts on inflammation. There's a class of genes that impact on, um, I've forgotten what the third class of genes, it will come back to me. But those are some of the important areas that can be um, identified by looking at these kind of um, genes that increases susceptibility to disease. But in terms of therapy, we hear about things like gene therapy. Most of us don't have a great understanding of what that means, but you know we hear about it with respect to other monogenetic diseases, diseases of single cause. Mm -hmm. Is this going to be a reality? I would say with Alzheimer's disease um, that even in the monogenetic forms, it may be um, difficult. So going back to why the, the, the trials um, without some of this failed, um, these um, trials were using drugs which impact on amyloid pathway, but these drugs were given to patients which are already symptomatic. So these patients have already have extensive um, brain damage, their cell loss, and what people think is that the amyloid acts as the initial trigger that occurs about 10, 20 years before the disease occurs. So um, by the time you get any kind of symptoms, even mild cognitive impairment, like Sharon said, it's almost too late. So what's important is actually developing ways of identifying people who are at risk of disease so that these kind of therapies may be administered on time. And so I, I think it's, um, it is quite difficult to, to, um, to say at the moment whether monogenic gene therapy for Alzheimer's disease will work um, because the ones that causes Alzheimer's disease, the amyloid pathway, by the time you get the disease, it's, it's too late. Those kind of therapies don't actually work. So I think that's, that's where we're at at the moment. So back a couple of suggestions ago, we were talking, Rebecca, about people when they come to your clinic and 
um, you know, some of the deficits that they might exhibit. One of the hard things for families is to try and work out when to bring in support or when to, you know, when do we stop dad from driving? You know, three scrapes on the car, four scrapes on the car, you know, sort of, how, how clinically can you assist families in making decisions like that? Um, so absolutely, and I guess it's the things like when do we introduce support and when do we stop driving are the most common things we get asked. So when the patients come, we do a full cognitive assessment and essentially we can tell where their major deficits are. And if they've got prominent visuospatial problems, then I always have concerns about, for example, people driving. And usually some specialists leave it up to um, the family to decide and say, well, you drive with the patient, see if they're okay. If they're okay, then they can keep driving. I don't think that's a very good approach because lots of people, there's all you know family dynamics wound up with that. So essentially what the law says, for example, for driving is that once you have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, you need to inform the Roads and Traffic Authority and then essentially they say, ask your doctor if you can drive. So what I do for all patients, to be fair, is send, send them for an occupational therapy assessment with an occupational therapist in the car who can drive with them and assess their driving. And that way you're not needlessly taking away someone's licence, but also if they're not safe driving, then they're not driving anymore. And I guess it's finding out some families cope better with the diagnosis and some don't. And I guess it's having a multidisciplinary clinic where you have, for example, an occupational therapist, a social worker, a nurse who can often sit with the patient and the carer who may not say things to the doctor and find out what's actually going on in the environment. And then we kind of work out when help is needed. I also say to families, it's better to ask for help early because the way the system's desi designed, it will take you three to six months to get any help. So there's no point deciding on a Sunday that you need help on a Monday, because it won't happen. So it's always good to have that safety net there. And if you don't need the help, you don't use it, but if you need it, it's there. So moving back to one of the themes of World Alzheimer's Day, which was around supporting people and communities. So Sharon, as a psychologist, what can we as individuals do in a community to make the world a better place for people with dementia and for their families? I think the first thing we need to do is to try to keep people living in their own homes for as long as we can. Um, and really that requires us to think about building and supporting and facilitating dementia-friendly communities. And there are some examples of this in Australia and some great examples overseas, but in Australia, Port Macquarie actually all got together as a community. They've got political engagement, the support of local um, businesses. They have a, a specific place that's for people with dementia and their families with gardens. We know there's actually a lot of things that we can do in terms of interventions or activities that people with dementia really enjoy. Um, and I think one of the problems we've had in the past is that someone's given a diagnosis and often people with Alzheimer's disease don't really have a good insight into the fact they have Alzheimer's disease. But that doesn't mean they don't have a brain anymore and we don't need to think about things that actually can make them feel content or foster their well-being. So we do need, I guess, as a community to be a little bit 
more aware of how do we keep, what kinds of activities can we do for people, how can we keep people engaged in exercise, and also make sure that people aren't isolated socially. Social isolation is really big in dementia, um, and we certainly don't want people to start developing behavioural problems, depression, sleep disturbance, there's lots of things like that, that if it's on our radar to look out for those kinds of things with people with dementia, then we can actually implement um, programs in the community as well and, and also have other carers. So we know we're going to have a massive shortfall of carers by 2025. We're going to need about another 250,000 unpaid carers and about another 130,000 paid carers to look after people with dementia. So as a community, I guess, given the rates of dementia will quadruple by 2050, it's going to need to be on all of our radar to be thinking about how can we assist um, these people in terms of transport and getting around and actually um, communicating with people with dementia better. That can be as simple as changing signage, um, just having people that are aware of dementia and know how to assist and communicate with people with dementia. Um, so before we move on to questions from the audience, are there any final points that any of you would like to make that you feel haven't come out in the question? I mean, Nan, I was just thinking when Sharon was talking, I think often in the community there's a lot of fear about dementia and a stigma attached with the diagnosis and somehow how did this happen to me and why has this happened to me? And I think the number one thing I think as a community we need to know is that anybody can get it. You can be, you know, a university professor to anybody, someone who does manual labour. It doesn't discriminate on what you do, what your education is. And I think if we realise that we're all at risk of getting it, that will provide us, I guess, with the push to change things and accept people with dementia and make it not a stigma to be diagnosed with. Uh, I might have. Um, so maybe we can touch on topic of epigenomics that you, we, we talked about earlier. Um, so it's actually um, an area of research I'm very much interested in. Some of you may have heard of the term epigenomics. Um, in its most simple term, we can think of it this way. Firstly, we, we know what our genetic code is. It's a um, string of four letters that spells out the genetic code. The epigenomics is basically a chemical signal which acts as uh, musical notations, which determines how loudly or how softly that gene is expressed. And what's interesting about these epigenetic signatures is it's exquisitely sensitive to, your, to the environmental factors, to your lifestyle. So we can measure the epigenetic changes in a certain gene of interest, and we can correlate whether um, the person has been exercising or has been eating a certain diet on that gene. And these epigenetic um, signals have the potential of switching off disease genes or increasing the activity of a beneficial gene. So one of the most immediate, I think, um, application epigenomics is actually a use as a biomarker, which Rebecca touched on. We, can, um, we consider that these sort of epigenetic signals um, it's an exquisite biomarker for your lifestyle factors. So I think adding an epigenetic arm to, to your research is a very sort of um, good way forward to, to measuring some of the lifestyle um, impact that can, can be either reprotective or um, causing a disease. All right, so now what I'll do is actually hand over my microphone. 
and invite questions or comments from members of the audience. First, in the first row. Here we go. Just oh, if you. No, no, no. We're recording the night. Oh, so okay. Answer, yeah. um, I, I'm curious about the approach that's generally undertaken towards treatment of Alzheimer's, and that there are clearly some distinct biochemical markers in the brains of people with AD. Right? One of them is low hydrogen sulphide. There's also um, low activity of conotase in the enzyme, and you can predict many min mini mental score according to a conotase activity. There's low acetylcholine produced in the brain. There's elevated homocysteine. There's low vitamin B12, and it's also associated with low iron. But nobody is addressing that. If you look at nearly every symptom, you can trace this to deficiency in vitamin B2 and active vitamin B12. Nobody is addressing this. I think it's really, really, really curious because it works as a treatment in chronic fatigue syndrome, which has very similar chemistry, and it also works as a treatment in autism. Yet I'm not seeing it being used for the treatment of AD. The studies that have been done using cyanocobalamin and oral are rubbish, they should never have been attempted. So I'm just wondering why, where the disconnect is that I can see it's patently obvious, there are so many papers on it, and yet nobody has addressed this aspect of what is going on in the brain. I mean, I guess when you look at it, there are different, I think one of the problems with the Alzheimer's disease trials, as John touched on, why they haven't worked, are that we have difficulty clinically often defining what is Alzheimer's disease. So we're getting better at it with the advent of biomarkers. And so a lot of the clinical trials have failed to date because they haven't had, I guess, pure patients with Alzheimer's disease in the trials. I think there are lots of avenues that are being looked at around the world. You mentioned acetylcholine, and that's one of the avenues that the cholinesterase inhibitors have targeted, and that treatment's been available for Alzheimer's disease for the last 20 to 30 years. There is some recent research suggesting that not only do the um, cholinesterase inhibitors slow the progression, but they may have a neuroprotective effect in terms of Alzheimer's disease. And before we just thought it would slow the progression, but it may change the underlying disease pathology. That's kind of an area that's just being researched at the moment. So I think it takes time for dis different research laboratories to look at. In terms of vitamin B12, um, we do screen all patients and check their vitamin B12 levels. And if it's low, they are placed on uh, vitamin B12 supplements to see if that improves their um, cognition but only if the level is low. But I think it's potentially a possible avenue of research. There are lots of different avenues. You would have read in the media that iron deposition is being looked at as a potential possible avenue of research. So I guess it just takes different research groups to look at different avenues and eventually we'll get to a single point. And it may be that there's not one single drug that will treat Alzheimer's disease, but there are multiple drugs that need to be trialled, and it may be a combination. All right, other, can you grab the microphone, Kirsten? So, down, sorry, down the back on the left, then down the back on the right, yep. Hi, my name is Bansi, and it's a question for Sharon. First, I hope and pray that we get the cure before 2025. So that's the first one. 
I want to ask you, like, uh, your remedies, like the Mediterranean diet, do you believe there's any other diet, like the herbal medicines or the Chinese medicines? There's so many old medicines people use. Do you think that will be the helping for them? I think there's a lot um, to be said for diet. I think we just, at the moment, don't have good enough studies and, and good enough evidence base to actually scientifically recommend one over another. So recently, our group at this university did do a, what we call a meta-analysis, a th synthesis of all of the studies of even the Mediterranean diet and found actually that there weren't good cognitive outcomes measured in a lot of those studies. Um, and the studies varied widely in terms of how long they tracked people for, how they actually measured whether people were having that diet or not. So I think there's a lot to be said in it. And certainly when you, when you look you know, at a kind of gross level, you can say that many of these kinds of diets work. We just don't know for sure whether commencing someone on one of those diets or recommending one of those diets will actually prevent Alzheimer's disease. And the chair's prerogative to add to add a bit to. The other thing to remember is that in many studies, regardless of the disease at which they're looking at things like particularly the Mediterranean diet, it's the whole lifestyle. If you look at the people that, that had these diets that were high in fish and high in olive oil and, and low in animal fats, there were also people that, that undertook a lot of manual labour and you know, were thinner. And So if one looks at one aspect, the diet, without looking at other aspects of health, then you're not really going to get the, the whole story. And this is what, what Sharon was trying to say about, you know, people do these very focused studies on, on one aspect and it's, it's a big picture thing that we need to do sometime. But obviously, if you're going to do that, you need hundreds of thousands of people and probably more hundreds and thousands of dollars to do it. And so, you know, people tend to focus on their, their one thing. So, yeah. There was a question back on the right. Um, I just had a question regarding um, diagnosing and screening Alzheimer's. So do you, do you think there is a current uh, gap in the market for screening Alzheimer's? Like, do you think that the current methods like imaging and cognitive tests are good enough? Um, and following that, if there is a gap in the market for potential screening tools, um, what would you like to see as clinicians? Like, what would you like to see in a potential product that can screen Alzheimer's disease? I mean, I guess absolutely. So we know that the changes for Alzheimer's disease can start between 15 to 20 years before we actually diagnose people with Alzheimer's disease. And the treatment, when we do find a cure, will need to be given 15 to 20 years before people develop symptoms. So we need tools to diagnose it. Um, at the moment, um, there are a couple of trials going on in what we call dominantly inherited Alzheimer's disease, which John touched on. There are four kind of major genes that cause um, genetic Alzheimer's disease. And they're looking at trialing patients who are at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. So they're the children of patients with Alzheimer's disease in their 20s, 30s and 40s, and giving them treatment to see if there is a benefit and they can stop the development of Alzheimer's disease. So that study is due to be reported on next year, so that will provide interesting results. There is definitely a need for tools to diagnose it early, and I probably see it, it will be involve CSF sampling, so looking at the proteins that cause um, Alzheimer's disease, but if you imagine doing a lumbar puncture is quite invasive. So essentially you have to put a needle 
in the back and take a sample of fluid. So a blood test would be amazing if you could measure those proteins on blood, a simple blood test. Other things that people have looked at to look at the protein is saliva samples as well. That hasn't um, yielded anything as yet. Um, the other avenue that would be ideal is imaging as well, and I guess a test that people could do at home. That's, I guess, where we're heading, but I think we're probably a good 10 to 15 years off being able to do that. Okay, thank you. If I could just add to oh, yeah. that. Sure. Um, I guess the other thing that, as a neuropsychologist, we spend you know, two hours or so or more with someone, depending on the type of dementia they have, really looking at every aspect of their brain and how it's functioning. Um, what we're kind of thinking in the ageing space and in the mental health space is we actually need to have better um, technology, um, ways that we can screen people continuously throughout the day, perhaps, where we can use apps or we can use other things like that, but also tools that can actually reach people in rural and remote um, and regional areas. Because one of the big problems we have at the moment is that all of our tools are very kind of metrocentric and people in those other areas don't get access to them. So we really have an opportunity with technology to start to think about other ways we can do very, very quick screening um, of people using computerised cognitive testing to try and pick up that preclinical period, that 10 or 20 years before someone ever presents to a clinic. Um, and I think some of the cognitive tools do have a lot of potential there and um, there are a couple already that are being used and can detect even those mild cognitive impairment stages. But we actually now need to go beyond mild cognitive impairment, as John said, that even at that stage, a lot of the changes in the brain have already happened. So that would be helpful if someone could do something for, you know, two or three minutes on, on a phone, on a smartphone, for example, um, and we could, could track people over time. In the second row... Hello. Um, my question is, what do you think is going to happen in the next 30 years, and what would you like to actually happen? So in, in terms of like advancements, breakthrough, like what do you think it's the future for Alzheimer's research, and what would you like the future to actually be? I don't know if I explain myself. I mean, I guess ideally we'd want a cure. So we'd want a drug that you could give people, you could, well, I guess first go back and be able to screen people, work out who's going to get Alzheimer's disease, who's not going to get Alzheimer's disease for people in their 30s, and then give them a drug that could stop the development of Alzheimer's disease. But I think we're, I mean, the other problem is if you watch, I guess, Channel 7 every week, they've got this amazing cure for Alzheimer's disease, but when you actually look at it, it's five patients and it hasn't been trialled in big clinical trials and it doesn't work. So what we need is, I guess, one of those treatments to work in big clinical trials for there to be a cure that's widely available and for us to be able to screen people quickly for Alzheimer's disease. Um, just to add to that, I think maybe another thing we need to explore is the concept of precision medicine. So not every... Even if a drug does work, it doesn't work on everybody. And understanding why that is, is something that a lot of research is focused on. And so people are developing sort of genetic and epigenetic markers to try and predict why a certain person will respond to favorably to a drug and other people may actually respond badly to it. So that's something just, I think, something that um, is sort of we're pro working on 
um, at the moment and hope to see fruition in the near future. And I think the other thing we need to think about is just pushing back that onset of dementia. If we can push it back to beyond the lifespan of people, then there will be no... Or put it, push it back to close to the lifespan of the person so that the, the period with which somebody is living with dementia and therefore the amount of impairment that they undergo is quite small relative to their lifespan. It's a, it's a concept called the compression of morbidity, but it's about pushing down to all illness to the, to the very last minute of life, if you like, so that um, people don't spend a large amount of their time living with cardiovascular disease or dementia or, or whatever disease that it is that they have. So, so not think, just a pharmacotherapy sort of approach. I think there are probably other things too. I think that's an excellent point and I recall a conversation I had with some centenarians um, some time ago and they said what you've done I guess medically is enabled us to live longer, enabled our bodies to kind of function longer but you haven't done anything for our brains and so there's nothing there really once we reach a certain age to improve our quality of life and then we get dementia and we're living with you know dementia but that's kind of been ignored that aspect of it so I think that's a really good point you know we might certainly my children are going to live to 100 I hear <laughs> but I hope there are things for them to do in retirement our community is much more engaged in keeping them involved um, at those phases of life too. So, other questions over here, on right? And then there's one at the back of the room as well. Oh, and one over there. Right. Don't give me more than three. I can't remember three things in a row. Right. Thank you. Uh, Sharon, earlier you mentioned that depress depression is a, a quite a um, risk factor for Alzheimer's. Is is it depression in particular that's a risk factor, or is it just any kind of mental? conditions such as anxiety or, or other things like that? No, it is seems to be depression in particular. So the link with uh, between anxiety and cognitive impairment is nowhere near as pronounced. Um, interestingly, there's a couple of things going on with depression. One of them is that some older people, when they get um, vascular changes, the changes in the blood vessels in their brain, are more likely to get depression after the age of 50 or 60. Um, and it's due to those circuits in the brain that regulate our mood and our thinking and, and that kind of thing. But the other um, body of literature shows that if people are living with depression and are, and are not treated for depression, it seems to be quite toxic for the brain. And particularly that part of the brain called the hippocampus that looks after our memory. Um, so that same part of the brain is involved in Alzheimer's disease, um, but we think that there are probably um, some different kinds of processes happening in depression that make um, depression quite toxic to that structure. So it does seem to be more specific. And the animal studies show that the newer generation antidepressants, um, like the SSRIs, seem to, in animals at least, be protective against those effects of depression on, on the brain. We don't know for sure in human studies whether that's the case, but certainly when we follow large groups of people who haven't had their depression treated, we know that they do tend to have more brain degeneration or compromise in some way compared to people that have actually had treatment for their depression. Um, back of the room, there's a lady. I had more or less the same question, oh. <laughs> but I'll cover it also on the education side, uh, whether it is uh, a lack of education later in life or whether it would be education, would an 80-year-old now uh, be disadvantaged by the fact that they didn't have a lot of education in their earlier years, given that you know, they're depression children? 
Oh, sorry, depression era of children. So, so that question's um, you were talking about the depression era as opposed to depression, uh, depressive disorder. Um, and so I think the question was about then cognitive activity or a lack of education in that particular time. The evidence suggests that it's, it's not too late to start becoming engaged. There's a study in Tasmania at the moment that's been looking at going to university in, in later life. Certainly all the cognitive training literature that shows that if you're actually engaging in either computer games that are very, very focused and, and, and done in a supervised in, in clinical environment, you actually get improvements in, in memory. It's the strongest effect. Clinical improvements in memory in association with that. Unfortunately, that whole area is plagued by a lot of people, you know, like Nintendo capitalising on do 10 minutes a day and you'll reduce your brain age and that kind of thing. But there are studies showing that um, occupational complexity and, and a range of things that are done at midlife can still actually be pretty be protective against dementia as well. Okay, there was a question. Fourth row. Thank you. Hi. Um, so yoga and meditation has been found to be helpful in conditions such as anxiety or depression. So my question is, has there been any links established between yoga and the prevention of Alzheimer's? Um, I think it's a little bit like the diet question. I think there certainly have been studies, but I don't think we have a good enough evidence base of good randomised control trials yet to say that that would definitely work for the prevention. Whereas other studies like um, of aerobic exercise or resistance training there's, or even high intensity um, interval training, um, there is a stronger evidence base emerging around those forms of exercise at the moment. I suppose we can turn that question on its head a bit too, Sharon, in that um, if doing yoga and meditating reduces one's stress levels, there is evidence about having increased stress is not that good for your brain as well. So, you know, if one meditates and is less stressed, then... You know, but yeah, there's probably been no... Absolutely, yeah. and as goes for the exercise argument, we know that exercise improves your cardiovascular fitness and that that's, and also improves your mental health. And in many studies, exercise is as good for depression as um, antidepressants are, if not better. So, um, yeah, the, the same kind of thing. Those do have multiple mechanisms by which they actually may contribute to prevention. There's a gentleman right in front of you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm 80 years of age. Um, I'm active. I play tennis and golf, and I do activities such as uh, being on the James Craig and uh, men's shed and things like that. I have a good diet. Uh, my wife looks after me very well as far as my health care is concerned. Um, she also makes sure that uh, I'm well dressed at all times and things like that. But coming to the point is um, when it comes to remembering to come here and uh, knowing uh, what time and where to come to, um, I wouldn't have uh, been able to uh, recall that um, on the day that I was to do it. And that's the thing that's causing me um, difficulty. And at this stage, uh, I don't say I've got depression, but it's, uh, it's giving me the shits, uh, to put it um, <laughs> clearly. I mean, I guess the point is that while diet and exercise are important, it isn't the whole answer. 
Um, so I've got patients who are marathon runners who cycle every day and they still get Alzheimer's disease, they eat healthily. So I think diet and exercise is by all means important, but I don't think it's the answer. And we don't know why some people develop Alzheimer's disease and some people don't. We just don't know. And I think um, the point is that if you feel that you're depressed, that's probably the most common thing that people come to the clinic with, saying, I feel a bit depressed, my memory's not good. And we can screen you and work out, is it depression or is it something else? And depression's treatable, and if you treat it, memory gets better. So I think it's important that people, if they've got concerns, get screened and don't be afraid to come and see someone. Sorry, I was suggesting that I should. Well, no. <laughs> that I should be screened? Well, I think if you've got concerns, anyone who's got concerns, it's better to be screened because it may be nothing. It may be something that's potentially treatable. It may be depression that can be treated. If not, if it's something else, then um, you can go into treatment for it. So if people have got concerns, they should get screened. Could, could I just add to that, though? It's really important that we... Um tease apart what is the nature of why you might forget to come to appointments because there's many different reasons why people do have some difficulties remembering appointments. At 80 years old, some of that is just age-associated cognitive decline. All of our brains start, you know, changing from about the age of 20, although Gillian might correct me um, there. But um, it is important to kind of recognise, is it something that other 80-year-olds also experience or is it a little bit worse? And if it is a little bit worse, then is it because the information is not going into your memory in the first place? Is it because that it's going in there but then it's, it's, we're losing it again? Or is it that those kinds of memories are just a little bit hard to access and that if we kind of helped you and gave you some prompts and things, you would be able to get those memories out? So when you have an assessment and a fairly detailed assessment of memory, we can work out what is the problem with memory and therefore what supports can we put in place? Sometimes it just takes repeating information a few times. Sometimes it means that we need to teach people how to use diaries and things like that and that's enough to support their memory from a functional perspective and that's not indicative of anything more sinister. Sometimes it's just that there are some changes in the vascular circuits of the brain, the blood vessels that make our memories a little bit inefficient and therefore it's just a bit hard to get to those memories but they are still in there somewhere. I'd say why not? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Given that um, the significant number of people are likely to be diagnosed or we're going to need to have all these carers in place, is there any talk about developing a, a policy that would suggest that people do get screened at 50 or whatever for the potential? Is there any talk about that? Should there be? No, I mean, at 50 it is tricky because, um, I mean, there are 1,800 new cases um, already each week and we already have difficulty with those cases and certainly consumers say that they're concerned that the average time from which they notice symptoms to getting a diagnosis is three years. So we are already considerably struggling and it's really hard even for GPs because the tools they have are not sensitive enough, particularly in highly educated people, and they can't spend the time with people to do that. So I think, I guess what I was saying before about technology is we want to move to the place where we can use technology to screen people in those early phases at age 50 or so, but sometimes it's really 
really hard to detect any impairment. And we know that there's a group of people that say that they have concerns about their cognition or memory. They come along and even see someone like me who spends all this time testing memory and all these different aspects, and we say we can't find anything on testing. But we know that those people still go on to progress to mild cognitive impairment and then to Alzheimer's disease. So we know we do have to get to that place, and we certainly do, but we're just a long way from it yet. Going back to the other question about what other things do we need? We need to think about people genetically at risk. We need to think about having better biomarkers. And at that phase, maybe it's warranted. But even so, we'd want to know that we've got a cure if we're going to start screening everyone. Well, like, what's the point in screening everybody unless we can actually do something about it? And the other thing to remember, and, and Sharon will elaborate, no doubt, is that some people who do have memory impairment will have stable impairment for a long time. It's not necessarily progressive. Other people will have it, will go down very quickly. So you then ask the question, because we don't have this biomarker that we keep talking about, like we do maybe for, you know, colon cancer and prostate cancer and things like that, um, when, do, when do we make that measure? How do we interpret it? Um, how accurate is it going to be to pre predict an outcome anyway? So it's, it's we're, we're a long way from, yeah, we're a long way from being, being able to, to do that. And even as a neuropathologist, the other thing to remember is that if I look at the brains of people, anybody, old people, everyone, if they live long enough, will develop some of these proteins that we know are associated with Alzheimer's disease, the plaques and the tangles, in their brain, okay? So the big question to me, of course, is why can some people have these proteins in their brain and retain their functional level, whereas other people have these proteins in their brain and develop dysfunction, so lose function over time. So we can't even say, oh, well, we'll do a PET scan on everybody and see if they've got amyloid in their brain, because that's not going to answer the question. Oh, well, we'll do a tau scan and see. No, that's not going to answer the question. Memory's not going to answer the question. So the genes aren't going to answer the question. So. We're really not at a point where we can accurately predict from any single time point an outcome in people. You know, we can diagnose them if they have the disease, but we can't um, predict that, that path that they will follow. Okay. Um, oh, we've got all sorts of questions. So maybe the one closest to you, and then the gentleman down the front, and the gentleman up the back. Hi, um, I have a question regarding the government support for people with Alzheimer's. Um, I think you mentioned as well, um, people who are over 65 years old with Alzheimer's are often put in um, aged care facilities. So I think that has something to do with um, um, the aged care system and aged care reform in Australia as well. So my question is, how do you think uh, what do you think about um, the aged care system in Australia and how do you think it has impacted people with Alzheimer's? Thank you. Um, I think we have a problem at both ends. So there's a lot of support for people who are less than 65 with Alzheimer's disease to remain at home, but there will come a certain point where a lot of people need to be placed to a young. And I think our aged care system doesn't cope with those people very well because a lot of them are still physically active, can still walk, walk around, so it's not appropriate to put them in, for example, a nursing home uh, because a lot of the patients in the nursing home are a lot older. So that's kind of one problem that we need to address. The second problem is that in terms of support for people over 65, um, 
They get put into an overwhelmed aged care system that's dealing with people just generally ageing and is not focused specifically on people with memory problems. So I think we need to have resources available to help carers keep people at home because people are a lot happier at home. They can remain functional for a lot longer. And I think, I mean, I often think when you look at nursing homes, you've got to pay that huge bond to get in an, into a nursing home. If the government actually helps subsidise people to have nurses to go into the family home, that might be a better way of spending money in a more kind of economical way. And I think it's turning, I guess, the whole system on its head. Australia's very much had... I guess the philosophy, when people reach a certain age, they may go into a nursing home where other cultures, people never go into a nursing home and they're cared for at home. But I don't think the government supports people to do that. So I think we need to change that. And I think it will come from campaigning from the community, from health professionals, from community groups to kind of look at how the system runs and how we might be able to help it. It's fair to say that aged care providers, though, are very much aware of this landscape and my discussions with aged care providers indicate they're very much having the community on their radar and rethinking their strategy um, to actually enable people to live in the community. I think it would just take some time. There's also figures suggesting maybe 30 to 40% of the current aged care facilities are not fit for purpose and need to be demolished. So um, certainly because we know what's coming in this, what we often call a tsunami of dementia, we do have a bit of time to think about how can we rethink this. We just have to do it quickly. <laughs> um, there was a gentleman down the front here. Yes, third row. There you go. I wonder if the panel could um, give me some indication on the development of neurogenesis. Neurogenesis? It's neurogenesis, the growing of new brain cells in the hippocampus. It seems to me we look at the old cells that are dying, how can we actually grow many more new cells? Um, it's, it's a vexed issue. There's a, a lot of the evidence for neurogenesis comes from the rodent literature, and rodents do, without doubt, grow new cells. Um, work from my own laboratory, actually, has shown that um, the majority of new neurons, or the, yeah, stop the birth of new neurons by about the age of 18 months to three years, okay? We do continue to make some cells, but they're almost exclusively microglia, okay? Having said that, there are a few papers around that have found relatively small levels of cell turnover um, in, in some areas of the brain. But when you consider that a disease such as Alzheimer's disease, if we look at the hippocampus, we've all talked about the hippocampus today, its role in memory function, by the time that somebody has diagnosed Alzheimer's disease, about 60% of the neurons, and there are, something like about 450,000 of them. So 60% of them are lost, okay? Um, it would have to be a remarkable machinery to try and bring back... Fertiliser. Fertiliser. <laughs> Where was the gentleman that asked we wanted a development? Fertiliser for brain cells, okay. <laughs> All right. So go at the back. Yep, thank you. Hi. A uh, question for Rebecca. Uh, we have so many devices, like the new iPhone can recognize your face. We have Fitbit, which tells you your heart, monitors your heart, and tell, prompts you 
oh, you need to calm down and everything. Can't be, is there any device which to the eyes, they can check if you have got it? Because I've been to a seminar to the neuroscience of, in Melbourne to that imaging, or there's any other better device to find out if there's a, uh, that you have it or not. Um, I mean, that is true. There are some studies that have looked at looking at the back of the eye to see if there are changes that could predict Alzheimer's disease. They're also looking at it in frontotemporal dementia. But they haven't... When they work in small studies, but when they take them to big studies, they haven't been found at this stage to be accurate to diagnose Alzheimer's disease. Um, you can look at the back of the eye and see vascular changes and predict someone's vascular risk, so whether they have changes from diabetes, high cholesterol, for example. But at the moment, we're just not there to predict um, do they have Alzheimer's disease. Oh, goodness, we'll start at the back this time. Oh, Joe. <laughs> Um, if we look at the development of diseases, uh, the immune system not only plays a role in the development but also the progression. I'm just wondering, can, what literature exists um, around the immune system perhaps being manipulated in dementia uh, to perhaps reduce the progression or even the development uh, in Alzheimer's disease or even in frontotemporal dementias? So there definitely is literature, for example, in frontotemporal dementia showing that patients have an increased incidence of autoimmune diseases, so things like lupus, um, thyroid disease, for example, and also the offspring of patients with frontotemporal dementia have an increased incidence of immune-mediated disease. Um, it's a difficult question because one of the hypotheses for Alzheimer's disease is looking at neuroinflammation and there have been drugs that target um, neuroinflammation in Alzheimer's disease. So there's been a number of trials using monoclonal antibodies, which are essentially antibodies that try to mop up toxic antibodies in the body and dampen down the inflammatory reaction. Unfortunately, and whether it's the trials haven't been um, structured properly or the patients are too far on in the development of the disease, haven't shown a benefit for treatment. Um, the trial that I mentioned that's due to report next year in terms of at-risk patients, one of the treatment arms of that is using a monoclonal antibody to see if that um, can stop the development of Alzheimer's disease. So if that proves to be positive, that will be a major breakthrough, but at the moment we just don't know. But there is probably a link between immune disease and neurodegeneration as a whole. There's also some very old studies that looked at um, people with long-term non-steroidal anti-inflammatory use and found a decreased prevalence of cognitive impairment in those people. But when we then looked at the brains of people that had had long-term non-steroidal anti-inflammatory use, they didn't have any less pathology. So if there is an action, it's probably not working through the plaques and tangles that we know are so important for Alzheimer's disease. Now, we had a bunch of other questions down here somewhere. We've got one right down the front. This gentleman. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you mentioned recently that there's going to be a massive increase, I think quadruple by 2050, of sufferers of Alzheimer's. Is this caused purely by the population explosion 
or is it increasing on a per capita basis also? And if it is, why? So, yeah, it's due to the ageing population. So the prevalence of Alzheimer's itself is not increasing. Um, in fact, um, there are some studies, as a, a big European study that looked at many European countries showing that in some of those European countries, the prevalence or the, the proportion of people with Alzheimer's disease in the community was actually decreasing and it had decreased by 22% over the last few decades. And they put that down to better education, better diet, better li literacy and an awareness of things like cardiovascular disease. So I guess that suggests to us that when we're thinking about preventing Alzheimer's disease, that's certainly the place to go. Um, and we, we do have an opportunity to reduce the prevalence. And, and if we even target one or two of those risk factors, we will, will dramatically reduce the number of people living with Alzheimer's. So yes, it is because of the rise in the ageing population. Okay. Further question? Oh, have we come to the end of our questions or are people just thinking of their next one? Okay. <laughs> we need to go. Hi. Um, this can be thrown out to anyone on the panel, but there's been recent research into traumatic brain injury and its links to different types of dementia and like Alzheimer's disease. And some of those links have been thrown to sport and, I don't know, doing a header in soccer or really hard tackles in the NFL. And I was just kind of wondering what, I don't know, level or what direction that sort of research is going in and how that really links to Alzheimer's disease and whether that's something we need to think about in terms of prevention from a young age and, yeah, where the research is going in that direction. All right, I'll do it. <laughs> um, yes, you're right. So chronic traumatic encephalopathy, as they call it, which is the the result of multiple head injuries like the American football players and there's been a few TV programs on them, certainly results in um, some of the features of Alzheimer's pathology, um, not all of them and not necessarily in the, the stereotypic, the fairly um, well-established way in which we would see it develop. So one of the things we haven't talked about is as the pathology develops in the brain, it occurs in one area and then moves to another area and then to another area. And that's exactly what Rebecca uses as an indicator as, as those functions decline over time. And that's why she would say, oh, well, this is more likely to be Alzheimer's disease than something else, okay? So in chronic traumatic encephalopathy, there are the, the same sorts of pathologies, but they're in different places. And the people have um, a cognitive impairment, okay? Um, some of them develop a dementia it is in some ways related to, but it's not Alzheimer's disease, okay? And so, yes, there's quite a bit of concern around um, concussive head injuries, particularly in sports people, and you'll know even in our own various codes of football now, you know, people are sent off if they have concussion and they're not allowed back until a neurologist says they're okay and those sorts of things. So people are aware of it. Unfortunately, we discovered it as a historical thing from people that had played you know, years ago, and we can't go back and undo that now. But yeah, that, um, something to be aware of. There's a question down the front here. Just a very, very quick one. Mm. Um, on when you said in those countries, some of the countries had a prevalence decrease of 22%, was that, did they have higher levels in the first place? Or, or do you know, can you tell me a bit about those countries? Um, 
there could be a lot of factors there. Yeah, it was some of the European countries, including the UK. Um, I, I can't remember the details of all of the countries and the specific factors, but they were there were different rates of of decline in in the prevalence. Um, so there's a study by um, I think that the author is Wu that was in the Lancet or the Lancet Neurology just a couple of years ago that documents it um, quite well. And obviously some of it is related to diet and some of it was related to education. And that's essentially what they were arguing in the paper that these changes are, are due to them. And, and also that's the reason why we saw different rates of decline in the different countries. But I think it was Spain and it might have been France and the UK and a few around that kind of region. Better treatment of midlife hypertension is one of the things that people regularly quote as, as contributing to that decline as well. Okay. All right, I think we've probably come to the end of the questions from, um, from the audience. And so um, I'd like to thank you all for your participation tonight. It's been great having a full audience and, and so many really interesting questions. And I'd like you to join with me in thanking our three panel members for their time. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.